Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to interview some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This episode is made possible by the innovative team behind Peak Fishing. I use a Peak vise for my fly tying and can say with authenticity that these vices are designed for optimal functionality and efficiency all while keeping a low price point for the consumer. Manufactured and assembled in Loveland, Colorado, Peak Fishing products are designed and built for professionals, yet they're priced for everyone. Look for a list of prices and dealers at www.peakfishing.com. John Shuey has made more of an impact in my fly tying progress than any other human being could ever hope to. As the author of Spayflies and Dflies, his book guided my early steelhead fly tying days. And even his more recent book, Classic Steelhead Flies, has further improved my time and enjoyment behind the vice. The man is a wealth of knowledge, and he has dedicated his life to the pursuit of steelhead and the angling history they bring us. I met with John in Oregon in an attempt to bring his words to life, away from the pages, and here for you on Anchored. I'd love to tell you a little bit about how I came across you in the first place. You had written that book. When did that book come out? 2002. Okay, sounds about right. I had been studying flies. I'd found, the, uh, you know, that Ron Alcott book. And, sure, yeah. And uh-huh. Michael, I can never say his last name. Redentric. Thank you. Yep, yep. And, you know, it was all just a lot to take in as a new tire, but sure, it sure. was so classic and, and 
so I mean it's so artistic. And, yeah, exactly. And then all of a sudden you come up with this book called Spay Flies and D Flies and I knew that we were all spay fishing mm -hmm. with these double hand rods. Yep. And everybody kept calling the intruder um, style flies. We didn't know that those that those style flies were called intruders. Right. Um, at the time, we just knew that there was this big fly that was catching a lot of sure. fish, and yeah. people made the mistake of calling those spay flies. Yeah, yeah, and it, it goes deeper than that, actually. And I have I bear some of the responsibility for the mislabeling of the spay fly because in uh, 1984, 85, I met David McNeese. Right. And at McNeese's Fly Shop, who he had opened that shop in downtown Salem in 1977. Mm -hmm. And uh, David was, and is, a phenomenal fly tire. At the time, there was a magazine that had just started a few years prior called Fly Tire Magazine, Dick Soretti. Yeah. And David had written an article for Dick Soretti's magazine, one of the early, one of the first issues, uh, about two different spay flies. And uh, they were more like the Sid Glasso style of spay fly. Great. David had met Sid Glasso in, in uh, 84, I think it was, shortly before he died. And uh, so we kind of went on a, a, fly, a steelhead fly revolution in that shop. That shop had more to do with the evolution of steelhead flies since the, 19, you know, since the 1970s than any place else. It was phenomenally influential. People don't realize that today. What do you mean by steelhead revolution? Well, until that time, all you know, the, the bucktail revolution was still in, in full swing. I mean, flies were tied with chenille bodies or wool yarn bodies, bucktail wings, sometimes calftail wings because of the commercial impact. Mm -hmm. But David McNeese changed all that. He was a student of Preston Jennings' style of fly time. Right. That was his one of his major influences. David put uh, dubbed seal fur bodies on steelhead flies in the style of an Atlantic salmon fly. Yeah. Um, if you look at the David McNeese style flies of the era that he was tying, I was tying, Forrest Maxwell was tying, Albert was tying, a few others, one of the, the hallmarks were instead of using tails of hackle fibers, it was dyed golden pheasant crest. Now, search the historical record till you're blue in the face and show me where anybody else before David McNeese had tied steelhead flies with dyed golden pheasant crest. Dyed orange, dyed hot orange, dyed fluorescent orange, dyed red, dyed green, dyed black, dyed purple. Mm -hmm. So that you know that's one of the hallmarks of that era, and that changed everything. Now it's commonplace to see a, a dyed golden pheasant crest as a tail on a steelhead fly. That's commonplace because it's a part of Atlantic salmon. Absolutely, yeah. Um, that's what David flies. brought to it. That's what David brought to steelhead fly tying. It took that long for some. Well, there there was still some influence of, of the Atlantic salmon fly tying and steelhead fly, but steelhead fly tying and steelhead fly fishing started with trout flies. On the Eel River in California, mm -hmm. it was the tr the popular trout flies of the day: the Parmesan Bill, the the Coachman, uh, the Leadwing. You know, those were they just they used the trout flies they knew, and they upsized them by a hook size or two, and discovered they could catch these fish that were enigmatic. They didn't know what they were. They didn't know if they were salmon or they were trout, so they called them salmon trout. <laughs> yeah, the famous salmon trout. The salmon trout, right? Yeah. So that's where steelhead fly tying has its roots, but. It went through, you know, there were some permutations, some important critical stages. Uh, one of those stages was when feather wings were replaced by bucktail. Yes, and that is something very important that we do need to talk about. Mm -hmm. But I'm gonna, I really want to ask you about that in a minute. Yeah, we got, we got, we, we circled, we circled away from your original question. No, that's cool. No, that's fascinating. <laughs> and I do tangential very well. But, but that's all still, but that all, all the still fly thing kind of makes sense. I mean. Yeah. Where where the guys were taking the steelhead flies and how they were adapting them and they were using the, the Atlantic salmon style and proportions. I mean, all of that makes sense right. to me. Where what I'm confused about is how 
the spay rule. Yeah, I mean, so what, let me back off. Let me back up to your original question. Sure, sure. So in those air in the in the days of the McNeese's fly shop, we were really into spay flies, and we called them that. And we went way out on limbs with them. Well, let's explain to people what a true spay okay. fly is. And that's a that, that's an argumentative topic. It can be, but the fact of the matter is a and true you, spay fly. You put fly, your scotch down. Yeah, because so I'll I know use you're both. I will use both here. hands <laughs> to. Uh, yeah, there's some Italian in my family <laughs> somewhere. I can use both hands. So the true spay fly, first and foremost, has to be a pattern that originated on the River Spay in Scotland. In Scotland, to uh, to to be. Genre specific, it has to have originated in the 19th century, and it has to be stylistically identifiable for the, from the River Spay in that era. As intended mallard wings? Not necessarily. Okay. That's one of the interesting things about it. So, you know, some people will say, well, it has to have that long flowing hackle. No, heron hackle was used throughout the British Isles on, steelhead, on salmon flies mm-hmm. in the 19th century on certain flies. Did it have to have a tented bronze mallard wing? Not necessarily, because some of the earliest spay flies had turkey strip wings. Okay. But what really changed everything, what's truly diagnostic, was the hackle. Not the heron hackle. That's a different genre of spay flies. But the rooster tail hackles. So uh-huh. they were specifically breeding roosters, selectively breeding them on Speyside and at Goodwood Estates in England because the famous uh, Gordon Castle ghillie, Geordie Shanks, Gordon Castle was owned by the, the Lennox Estate, and that was the Goodwood Estate. Their English estate was in Goodwood. So they actually had a flock of specially bred spay roosters down at Goodwood. And Geordie Shanks was able to draw from those roosters. They also had a flock of the roosters at Gordon Castle. They had a flock at, at Karen House. They had a flock at, at Easter Elchies. So these roosters were bred for a specific feather on their tail clump that had fine stem and long fibers with a minimum of webbing. But the critical thing they did with that, when you hackle a salmon fly mm-hmm. and you hackle it front, you know, through the body, mm-hmm. you tie that hackle in by the tip mm-hmm. and you wrap it forward. Not on the spay. They tied in by the butt of the feather and then wrapped it, stripping one side off. So that, that was unique in, all of, in the entire world of Atlantic salmon. That what was, was the unique. reasoning for that? Nobody really knows what the reasoning was because we can't trace it far enough. We, we can't find out who tied the first one. We don't know who said, let's tie the hackle on backwards. Okay. Nobody knows. Can you think of an advantage? Well, I mean, there's theories. They say that, you know, for example, that allows the, the hackles to, to the, the fluffiest part of the hackles to be at the rear of the fly and be more open. And, but we don't know. When you say fluffy, you mean like plumage? The, yeah, you the, know, the when, you, when you pick a hackle there's, and you strip off the fluff at the end. That, I hate that it. Fluff, I hate well, it. Well, they, yeah, they left a little of that fluff on. Okay. So the first turn was a little bit of that fluff. And when so you, I like the other way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you're right. It's, it's cleaner. It's cleaner. Yeah. You know, when you tie in by the tip, it's very clean. Yeah. But it's but that's what made the spay the spay fly unique. Cool. Okay. And that meant that any learned salmon angler in the British Isles from the eighteen at least the eighteen sixty five, definitely by eighteen seventy through nineteen hundred, could look at a fly and say, "Oh, that's that's a spay fly." Because no other salmon flies reverse the hackle like that. Mm-hmm. Now you add that you, you add to those flies some other characteristics. You know, oftentimes the, the wings were bronze mallard. Mm-hmm. They were also turkey strips at times, turkey tail strips, but also the simplicity of the fly. Were they always tented wings though? Well, not necessarily. I mean, the turkey strips wings usually were kind of flared out. So a I thought bit, those yeah. were D's when they flared out. Well, D's are set flat. Oh. Traditionally, a D fly wing is set flat. Okay, so when I see when I see the scissored like wings. That's the D fly wing. If it's if the if the feathers are flat and angle out like an open pair of scissor blades okay, on top yeah. of the fly, that's the classic D style wing from 
1870s on? Right. So that is a D. That is, so mm-hmm. in my head, that's, that's a right. D. Right. But for the spay, you're saying it doesn't have to be tented. It doesn't. They can be laid flat. Well, more when I say not tented, I mean not together along the the, the crest of the fly. So okay. they can be separated. Okay. Yeah. Got it. But they're yeah. still they're still curving. Yeah, they still have a curve. They're still angled. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah. this is amazing. Okay. Yeah, it's really interesting. And you know, some of the the uh, I mean, I have my own theory on where the style may have come from, but it's there's not enough evidence to back it up to even talk about it, okay. you know. And I don't think that evidence is ever going to be forthcoming. I just don't think it was ever recorded. I mean, you're talking about gillies mm-hmm. who are uh, who are fishing with what, what they call toffs, the English. And it's, it's all tied, you know, it's, it's interesting because it was all tied to Parliament. When Parliament let out in August, it just happened to coincide with the start of the, the fall salmon fishing on the, <laughs> on the Scottish rivers. Figure. So all the toffs from England... Headed north. Yeah, and that's uh, a big part. That's a big part of their. It's a big deal. Of, yeah, of their heritage. Absolutely, and the other thing is tied to is the development of the railways in Scotland. So when travel got easier, mm. all of a sudden the, the salmon rivers opened up, and uh, they were able to get to them without being a, a major expedition by coach and by horse and by mule and by you know I mean it was brutal until the, the railways opened up in the 1860s. Mm. By the mid 1860s, the railways had reached Speyside. And uh, it changed the economy of the Spey River. Um, all of a sudden, it went from a purely agrarian economy to these wealthy, would become wealthy landowners who owned beats on the Spey that could attract very wealthy people from England. And it's very, it, from, the, from the earliest time, it became a, uh, essentially what we would call a pay-to-play these days. Yeah. So they had to lease the water. I mean, it's still a pay-to-play, isn't it's it? It's still a pay-to-play, absolutely. So yeah. that never changed. Yeah, it didn't change. In fact, yeah. when the English came to Canada, they brought a lot of the way that they fished into Canada. Which is why I was telling you earlier, that just psychologically, I can't deal with it. Mm. I, I grew up in the West, in the American West. I grew up in the American West. And I grew up in a place where we had Forest Service land on one side and BLM land on the other side. At 5,000 feet in the Idaho Rockies. And I was turned loose as a child. I mean, I wandered and wandered and wandered. I had whole drainages all to myself, full of cutthroat trout. Mm -hmm. I can't deal with the fact that somebody is going to tell me I have to fish this beat over and over all day. Psychologically, I can't deal with it. I have a hard time with it, too. So when I first saw the Spay River, I looked at that, and the first thing that came through my mind was, wow, you give Forrest Maxwell, my longtime fishing and hunting partner, and me, give us a couple days on this and just let us, just turn us loose. Right. And we'll fish the hell out of this thing. But it doesn't work that way. It's, there's no public water, right? Know? So it's a different, and it always has been that way. But and, that's, and you know, BC has open has public. It's all public right, water, right? BC is different, yeah. But yeah, the, the the fly thing is fascinating to me because there's such a misunderstanding about what a spay fly is, right? But it really comes down to uh, some pretty simple things. The hackling is unique mm-hmm. and seen nowhere else in the British Isles. And you know, in 1880, a, a salmon angler from England that was was fairly learned could say that's a spay fly. Without question, by the eighteen by the late eighteen eighties, the the fishing expedition in London was displaying cases of spay flies tied by Jamie Shanks, Geordie Shanks' father, at okay. the tiny little village of Craigellachie, right on Speyside. So, this is yeah, this so, is all way over my head. I, mean, oh, I, can't, great. Believe, I so, can't believe I haven't run into this in my reading. Well, books. nobody has, you know. I mean, it's uh, the the problem is that in fly fishing literature, like many genres of literature. Mistakes get repeated. Mm. So one of my favorites, and I, I find it humorous, it's been repeated by several authors, that uh, the Glenn Grant fly, yeah. which is a beautiful spay fly, 
with Jungle Cock in the wing. And the Glenn Grant, and you'll see this repeated in several books that are out there in the last 15 years, it's a fly tied by Glenn Grant of Castle Grant. Nothing could be farther from the truth. What is the truth? Glenn is not a man. Glenn is a ravine. It's a place. It's a, it's a landscape feature. It's a very common term in Scotland, Glen. It's, it's, a, it's like a narrow valley. How does that get missed? Exactly. So the fly was invented by Major James Grant. Major James okay. Grant okay. of Glen Grant Distillery fame. They're not the same grants as Castle Grant. Castle Grant's 30 miles upriver. Oh it's a different grant God, family. Completely different. And that's what's great about it. There's a, there's a <laughs> uh, Francis Francis, one of the great Atlantic Yeah, of He's got a book no, that nobody knows about. There's, you know, he wrote the famous book on salmon flies, but he wrote another one called By Land and Water. Oh. And in By Land and Water, he describes going into Grand Town on Spay, the little town on, called Grand Town. And I don't remember the exact quote, but it's something like, every other person I meet is named Grant. <laughs> And I can't make sense of this grant, that grant, that grant, or that grant. Mm-hmm. I'm like, exactly. Yeah. But okay. So you can certainly see how the mistake can be made, but it's also made by, by being sloppy. You know, by not uh, having solid methodology in, your, in, your, in the research that you're doing, you know. That's history and confusion. Totally. Fast forward to the 2000s. How were all these people in the, on the West Coast calling these large popsicles spade flies? Because, in the, because in the 1980s... I wrote my first, my first magazine article was published in uh, 1984 in Dick Soretti's Fly Tire magazine. And thereafter, I was a pretty prolific magazine writer. Yeah, let's, let me just back up here. You're, you are a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, how many books have you written at this point in your career? Well, uh, 16 or 18. But like I said, two of them are good. So, <laughs> hey, but listen, 16, 18 books is, uh, is a well, you know, impressive resume. You know Dave Hughes? Yes. So years ago, when my first book came out, Dave Hughes told me, Gave me some great advice. He said, John, don't sit back on your laurels. Don't pat yourself on the back. Keep them in print. Mm. He said, fly fishing books have a short shelf life, mm-hmm. and they don't. you're not writing books that sell 100,000 copies. Right. Keep them in print. And I always remembered that part of it, keep them in print. So I've always been, my, my idea about making a living as a writer is you don't have time or the luxury of patting yourself on the back. Okay. You just need to keep working. Because it's not already hard enough as it is. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Keep working. And you're yeah. the editor of Northwest Fly Fishing Northwest magazine? Fly Fishing, Southwest Fly Fishing, Eastern Fly Fishing. Yeah, it's all our magazine group. Yeah. You're, yeah. Bu- you're busy. Yeah, yeah. It keeps me busy. So that, I just wanted to give you some street cred here. So let's go back to the spay flies. The spay flies. So in the 80s, when I started writing a lot of magazine articles, I was working for Dave McNeese's Fly Shop. And uh, we were, innocently, I might add, calling everything we tied that had a long flowing hackle a spay fly. Oh dear, okay. More Got importantly, it. I'm we seeing were, it. more importantly we were publicizing it. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> just a half gener- you know, a half a generation before that, Sid Glasso had become known for his spay flies. Now, he didn't use that word a lot, but he used it some. And so when you when those two things converged, the Sid Glasso flies that Trey Combs publicized, mm-hmm. the Walt Johnson flies that Trey Combs publicized in his books in the 1970s, mm-hmm. and the McNeese era, <clears throat> which Got it. myself, David McNeese especially, we start calling all these things spay flies. In retrospect, sure, I wish we hadn't done that. But it, when you, when I put myself back at that time, it was very innocent. Of course. I'm thankful that you did it because when I was in Michael and Young's, I saw the Spay Flies and D Flies book and 
I grabbed it because it said spade flies, and I just wanted to learn how to tie spade right, flies, but right, I didn't know right. what a real spade fly was. Right, yeah. And uh, when I got home, I remember, actually, I was on, I was on, my turn to put it down my turn. <laughs> uh, I was in the hilltop. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Uh, on the Thompson, uh-huh. and the classy place that that was. And have you been I've there? Heard, no, I've heard okay. no. Yeah, I've heard everything that you've heard is true, it works. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and so we'd be sitting around the, the table tying flies, and I would have my spade flies and D flies book. And I would be sitting there reading it and and be, being like, you r- read this, you guys. And, you know, of course, nobody nobody would listen. People yeah, people won't read, yeah. But yeah. I learned how to, for example, soak my my feathers in hair conditioner mm-hmm. through you. And mm-hmm. I, I, I'm very public about that with my Rhea, um, mm-hmm. and my Rhea mm-hmm. videos. Mm-hmm. And and I learned about how to use a felt pen. And, and I learned about the history. And I learned about how to mount wings. And I learned about marrying wings right, through your right, book. Right, I learned right. about... I learned about so many different techniques that were definitely traditional, but mm-hmm. I used them to be forward thinking and put them Well, in you know, it's interesting you say that, April, because I don't use intruder style flies. It's just not my thing. I, mm-hmm. I have nothing against them. I mean, people misrepresent me all the time on this, and this is probably the first time I've ever, you know, actually had a chance to address it. Yes, great. I am a, I, I am a, constantly amazed at the artisanship that goes into what I call the, you know, the intruder style flies, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call the different genres that are popping up now. Amazing stuff. I mean, beautiful flies. You know, the stuff that you're doing and a lot of other people are doing now. Well, I mean, they're see, just I, gorgeous. I'm off the intruder thing. Yeah, yeah, but, but right. But I mean, that style of fly yeah. with, you know, the articulated stuff with all the intricacy that's going into some of those flies. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. I mean, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Even Trey Combs is doing some of that stuff now, you yeah, know, the, yeah. the, the guy himself, nice you know. Song. And, uh, but for me, that's just not me. But I do recognize the artisanship in it, and I and I wouldn't deny that. What I what I don't see artisanship is is a bunch of rabbit strip tied to a hook. You don't like the mollage, right? <laughs> you know, it's not my favorite. You know, <laughs> when I see that, it makes me just want to frame it. I just right. I don't know what it is about right. it, but right. Uh, but you know, the, but the if if uh, if the spay fly that Dave McNeese and I were calling a spay fly in the 1980s has inspired some of that, then I'm happy for that. You know, whatever whatever the semantics are. I'd like the semantics to be correct. I'd, I'd like to correct the mistakes that Dave and I made. And David McNeese is a quirky character. Yeah. He, he's a piece of work, you know, and I love him to death. And, and we're, we're, we're tight. We always have been. We have, you know, kind of a headbutt relationship at times, but it's always congenial. And it's always funny. And I always compare, you know, David is like the, the George Kelson of the steelhead Kelsen, world. that's a big right? statement, yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm the Sir Herbert Maxwell of the steelhead world. So, okay, yeah. so I'm the classic rationalist. And Dave is the classic, you know, left brain, art, left brain, whatever it is. If I could correct the semantics, I would, mm-hmm. but it's too late. That's too big now. So I chip away at it. You know, I hope that people will actually read things that I write where I say what a spade fly really is. Right. From the strictest standpoint, it has to be one of the 19th century patterns that came from the river spade. There's no way. There's no way to escape that. Okay, so the characteristics you listed. Yeah. Off so, the beginning. so like a Sid Glassel fly is not a spay fly. You know, people want to argue that, but I'm sorry. From a, from a strictly, you know, from a strict standpoint, there's no way. I mean, it's like saying that a Rogue River double. The Rogue River developed a certain style of fly in the 1940s and 1950s, which is tied on a little uh, mustad double bronze hook. Mm-hmm. It's a Rogue River style fly. Would you take that to Thompson and call it a Thompson fly? Or, you know, no, it doesn't change what it is. Mm-hmm. To be a Rogue River style fly, you've got to be tied on that double hook. Well, that's why the whole thing is so hilarious to me is that it is funny. The, yeah. the intruder is an actual pattern. Mm-hmm. 
You know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. I would be tying these flies and I'd have the jungle clock cheeks and I'd put in maybe a feather wing and I don't know, I'd put in a tag or mm-hmm. or I'd mm-hmm. rib it with a classic look. Mm-hmm. And people would be like, oh yeah, have you seen the Apogogi's intruders? And I'm going, well, no, 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 that's not an intruder. Not an intruder. It's, it's actually... Yeah whatever, it's a sugar pop or whatever it was right. at the time that I would call it. Some name that I usually read Which on Which is why you noticed I use the term intruder style. Exactly. So, not intruder. Exactly. Same so, thing as spay. Right. Spay style. Yes. Not spay fly. And I use the word variation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So Absolutely. I would go sell classes and I would put, you know, we're going to be tying streamers that still had streamers. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't sell a class. No kidding. So I'd put... I'm selling an intruder variation class sold out. Wow. So to what me, does that tell you? Yeah. yeah, it was hard because I all of a sudden I'm also contributing to this problem of, yeah. you know, misidentification. misidentification. Yeah. Uh-huh. But it, it's too bad because, and it's not a big deal. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's In the it's grand like, scheme of things, it's not a big it's deal. It's the first of first world problems. I mean, it's really yeah, definitely not yeah, an issue. Yeah. But, but within our genre, it's important. It is important to keep. If you can encapsulate what we are and forget about the outside world, it is important. Right. Well, the timeline was not straight. So that's one of the reasons why I really did want to sit down with you. Yeah. And there's no question that myself and Dave McNeese bear a lot of the responsibility for the mislabeling and the misidentification of what a space fly is because we started calling them that and we published articles about it. It's so subtle though. But did you ever take a fly that was an intruder variation and call that a space fly? No. No, okay, I never no, did I didn't think so. So no. you're, you, I'm talking about a much, it's a little so closer. Subtle. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. It, it mushroomed from there. Okay. And I had yeah. nothing to do with the mushrooming. <laughs> Dave and I just gave it a little kickstart. Okay, you know, got kinda, it. Yeah, we kind of kicked it off. Well, yeah. let's talk about the space flies and D flies book. Mm-hmm. So on the cover, you've got these beautiful space flies, space style flies, space style flies. <laughs> right. Were they not actually the true ones? Flies? Are inside the inside the book? Okay. Yeah. So I guess the true ones. I mean, it's been years mm-hmm. since I fully read that book. Sure, me too. But. The, so were the true ones, you know when you flip to the page and there's that kind, the kind of bland looking yeah, ones? Yeah, yeah. Were the those ones. the true yeah, ones? Yeah, that's the space Okay, ones. good. Yeah. So there's a ton of variations. There, there are, yeah. And, you know, they were. if you go back to 1875 on the Spey River and you were to visit Jamie Shanks or Jordy Shanks or, or Crook Shank or any of the, the fly tires, they're just like we are. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to play around with the vice. They may not tie. You, you have a favorite pattern? You may not tie it the same way twice. You may no. Play with a little bit. They were the same way. They were no different. So where did the Atlantic salmon proportions come from? Well, that's Kelson-esque. Yeah, okay. that's very Kelson-esque. So what was with Kelson? Why did things need to be so perfect and precise? Well, it wasn't only Kelson, but Kelson was, he was the uh, representative of that school of thought. And it was an artisanship, you know. It was, and and in a way, it's great because they really were strongly codified. And, and a few tires like Kelson being the forefront of that group were saying, to be perfect, it has to be this. And Can so they, you walk they me define through what the proportions are? Five turns of, of tinsel for the for the main rib. Okay. Um, the wing, you know, the, the wing, when you veil it with the tail and the topping, the tail and the topping should meet. Yes. You know, so those are kind of the critical things. And then there's all, all kinds of things about wing angles and things like that. And honestly, I get bored with it. I don't want to be restricted like that. Yeah. The thing that attracts me and always has attracted me to the classic spay flies a gold riach, uh, um, a gold green fly, Lady Carolyn, any of them. Mm-hmm. They're simple. They are. They're yeah. not necessarily easy to tie them, to emulate the originals. Mm-hmm. But once you learn how to do it, they they're so much simpler than, you know, I had a friend of mine, David Burns, who's a really fine fly tire from central Idaho. 
he once said, yeah, well, you know, really, they're just kind of woolly buggers with wings. What? And no. I go, well, they almost are, really. Really? That. <laughs> you know, really? I mean, you got a body. I don't ever want to hear it again. Yeah, I know, I don't either. It it's, it's, like, it's like dirty, but, you know, but yeah, you, know, you think about it, they're pretty simple, you know? Yeah, I mean, take they're, away all the snobbery of it. Yes, it right. is. Right. But, you know, the but on space side in the 19th century, those fly tires, it wasn't so simple to them because they were very particular about the exact shade of that body. Wolf, wolf dubbing from taken from yarn strands right. and trying to get very specific colors. But that's not even that long. I mean, I know guys from the ago. 60s and 70s who also have that, that mindset, yeah. that school of thought. How do we get off track then? I mean, and is it important to have the exact boar's hair of pale dun gray? Matte? I, mean, yeah, I mean, is it that important? Well, and, and another, another, uh, sort of a subset to that question is, do you really have to have the feather from that rare Katinga? Yeah. Or can you use a substitute? Well, I understand the appeal of using the original materials. Mm -hmm. What I don't understand is when you take that to the point where you're saying that my acquisition of, of these materials is more important than, than the rest of the, the entire process. Mm -hmm. So, if you can tie there, there's been like Ron Alcott. He always did a great job of tying with substitute materials. I mean, yeah. and you're really kind of the master of doing that. But uh, if you're gonna, if you're going to imperil a species, what people forget is that the English, the British Isles millinery trade put many species on the verge of extinction in in the in India and in, in Southeast Asia, and fly tying had had something to do with that. Mm -hmm. But the biggest thing was the reason that that. Uh, English fly tires, British fly tires in the eight, in the 19th century got all these phenomenal feathers was because of one simple trend, women's hats. That was my next question. Yeah. So it is true. Absolutely. Yeah. So can you walk me through that? Because you always hear about yeah. the women's hats. Yeah. They had, they had not only feathers on their hats, but there was this craze to have whole stuffed birds on their hats. It's crazy. Is this like the Little old school version of girls version. putting grizzly yeah. tackles in their hair? Oh, it's yeah. It's like the old school version of that on steroids. Oh, yeah. wow. Unbelievable. Okay, I'm sorry to cut you off. Go oh, ahead. no, you're fine. But, they, you know, all these, these beautiful little birds from Southeast Asia were being imported by the droves. Dead, of course. You know, they're killed and they're imported. And all to, to adorn ladies' hats. It was this incredible craze. And it was so incredible that it led to the, to the near extinction of some species of these little birds. And it was right. to the point where, where even in the 1880s, 1890s, there were conservation groups springing up because of that. Gosh. In the British Isles, yeah, it's unbelievable. The, the whole and, and then of course on the heels of that came the plumage thing, you know, where you had to have the egret plumes and the heron plumes and all that stuff. And that's mm -hmm. why the the slaughter of, of of eastern, you know, of of birds in eastern North America started wholesale at that time. Jeez, yeah, it's unbelievable. So when I mean, did everybody did anybody actually fish like a thirty two stacker married woman? back back in in the nineteenth century? Absolutely. Why? What was the appeal to that? And did the did the fly really fish well? I mean, did it, did it swim well? With yeah, I mean, they, if they were tied to fish, yeah. I mean, the first thing that happens with a, and I fished a lot of married wing flies. The first mm -hmm. thing that happens is the wing kind of gets destroyed, mm -hmm. which is good. There's a term called pinning the wing. Which is you take a needle and you run it through the married wing to separate the fibers before oh, you start it hurts fishing. Just to even right? hear you say that. Yeah, but you know, one of the things I I was in the feather business for a long time mm -hmm. and uh, dealt with all the Atlantic salmon flyers on the continent. You know, and and I know some of them are, are friends of mine to this day, but I don't understand, and I never did, why you would separate the fly tying from the fishing. To me, it makes no sense. 
when I tied full dress Atlantic salmon flies, I always tied them to be fished, whether they were going to a, a to be framed for an auction or whether they were going to a club raffle or whether they were going to my fly box or a friend's fly, they were tied to be fished, meaning they were tied what there was a guy named Al Brunel who died a few years ago. He was the last of the classic Rogue River fly tires, and he used a term called built hell for stout. And that meant you tie those things to stand up to a, take a beating. Mm. So with a salmon fly, that meant the gut loop is tied all the way down along the shank, mm. secure, so it can't pull out. Mm-hmm. Well, now what they do, with the guys that are mostly salmon flyers are tying just a tiny bit of gut in there at the very front. Yeah, they're so they're not using close. a bunch of gut. And so they can tie that beautiful proportion body. They're not tying these flies to fish with. You know, yeah, you might have to sacrifice that little teeny micro head that we all think is so cool these days, but you're building a fly that's meant to fish with, and it's still beautiful. So, you know, I, I don't, I've never differentiated between display flies and fishing flies. They're all, I only tie one style of fly, whether, and I don't tie many, I, I rarely tie a full dress Atlantic salmon fly anymore because it bores me. And I mean, what's the average amount of time it takes somebody to tie? Oh my gosh, it was four or five hours for me and I just, I couldn't take it. Yeah. It's, I mean, I'm just too high strung for that. So where in the history did the feather wing get subbed out for the hair wing? For steelhead flies? No, let's start with the salmon. Well, it, it really started with the bucktails back east, and there's, you know, around 1890, the first bucktail streamer flies were showing up in, back east. When you and say back east, you're talking... In New England. Okay. Yeah, and then there was a, a commercial company that started producing a bucktail streamer in, in uh, the Great Lakes region. I think it was Michigan or something like that in the early, like 1910. So was this just to keep it economical? Yeah, I don't know what their reasoning was. I think it was just, uh, you know, people that were coming up with new, new fly designs, just like we all want to. You know, we want to... Mm-hmm. Try something new, tie something different. and yeah. uh, But what interests me is how it came out to this coast. How did it come out here? Well, it's, it's really pretty fascinating because uh, there was uh, one of the, the guys, what was his name? I'm sorry I forget his name right now, but one of the gentlemen who lived in Illinois mm-hmm. traveled to the West Coast in uh, the nineteen late 1920s, and he was familiar with these bucktail flies. He was one of the people that was tying these bucktail streamers. And uh, so that was probably the first widespread use. That was probably when, when Bucktail got released to Southern Oregon and Northern California. So what were people but in the West using before? Were they all using flies. feather wings? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. Last April last year, it, this, was, this was inspired by the, the new book. I was so fascinated by what I was researching that uh, it, it occurred to me pretty early in the research that the Parmesan Bell was one of the first really hyper-popular steelhead flies. It's a beautiful wet fly with a, a yellow body and a red and white feather wing, and it's a New England uh, brook trout fly from the 1880s. And uh, that was one of the early steelhead flies. And the reason that, that fly and flies like it were the early steelhead flies is, has everything to do with the California gold rush. How? Huh. So 1849, gold is discovered at Sutter's Mill in California. And the gold rush starts, and instantly 300,000 people move to California. Where'd they come from? Back east. Oh, yeah. So... So they brought with them... That's right. Their... Their, their fishing tackle. Well, okay. Right? Interesting. Yeah, so in those days, 18, you know, 1850, you're talking about very simple flies, you know, simple wet flies. But overnight, San Francisco sprung into existence. And by the 1870s, there were... You know, by 1880, there were probably a dozen tackle stores in San Francisco. San Francisco exploded. I mean... Mm-hmm. It exploded in the 1850s and became a legitimate city very quickly. And so now everything that San Francisco wants, remember, you're talking about people that just arrived here. They're used to the, the you know, they brought the things they had back east and they're used to that kind of, of product line. So everything was coming from the east, either overland or by ocean. 
into the Port of San Francisco. And that included fishing tackle. And so if you look at the old ads from the 1870s, 1880s for those tackle stores, you'll see a lot of English wares for sale. Uh, you'll see East Coast stuff because there was nobody out here doing anything, you know. How many books did you have to read to figure out the parallels here? And to That's the part that fascinates me. You know, I mean, it's, 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 uh, you can, I go off on tangents like crazy. I mean, that's the <laughs> hardest part about, the last book I wrote, that's the hardest part about it. It's not just the fly history that fascinates me. It's, you start reading about this stuff and then all of a sudden you're, you know, you're off on some tangent and you're reading about the history of a, of a schooner that wrecked in the, uh-huh. you know, in San Francisco Bay or something. Totally. You know? <laughs> and the problem is, is you read one book. I know that I would read one book by one Gilly yeah. and then he'd mention another. And now I'm tracking down that Gilly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exhausting. It's exhausting and it's fascinating. And pretty soon you're off topic and you're like, wow, it's pretty awesome. But you know, like the newspapers, you know, San Francisco newspapers sprung up in California in the 1850s. Mm-hmm. Holy, Oh, what a treasure trove they are. I mean, it's amazing to go back and read those 19th century newspapers. You know, I'm trying to research fly fishing and fly tying. Mm-hmm. And there's little tidbits. You know, it's like a, it's like a, a Perry Mason mystery, you know. There's this little clue and this little clue and this little clue. And then you got to kind of follow the clues and try to piece them together. And you become a pretty darn good Google searcher at some point, you know. And, and then you rely on other people to help you. But uh, you always go off on tangents, you know. Mm-hmm. You'll find these stories in the papers. So it'll, I mean, I can't even remember, but some of the most bizarre news stories that had nothing to do with fishing, but I had to follow them. So I'm like, this is fascinating. You it's know? too interesting. Yeah, to it's too interesting not to, you know. So it's just, it's amazing research. But, but the uh, you know, when, when San Francisco exploded, it, it created, it engendered a sporting class. A class of fairly wealthy individuals who enjoyed the outdoor pursuits, hunting and fishing. Is that why there were so many fly fishermen in those days in California? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was it, in those days it was sort of a wealthy man's sport. I mean, it always has been essentially. Mm-hmm. That's uh, the the fact that it's not is sort of a modern thing. But they they uh, enjoyed their fly fishing and they enjoyed their wing shooting right. and a few other pursuits, of course. And uh, so that that city engendered that lifestyle because it was just a, a explosive overnight growing city bringing in all kinds of product from all around the world into the port of San Francisco, overland stuff coming from the east. So their first, all their tackle, all their flies originally were east coast and and British. Coming up, John talks to me about John S. Ben, material sourcing and ethics. Again, just a quick thanks to Peak Fishing for all of their support and for making this episode possible. Peak is a small company who cares about their customers, and their product leads the way as far as proving that they have the consumer's best interest at heart. Check them out at www.peakfishing.com. Where do we start to factor in Hague Brown? So Roger Hague Brown is an Englishman. He moves to Vancouver Island. He's on the West Coast. He goes logging. He's all over the West. Mm-hmm. I mean, surely, I know he was an Atlantic salmon fisherman. Like, surely he well, brought over a lot of his. Yeah, I, you know, we don't, we don't get to him quite yet because first you have to get through John Ben, John S. Ben, the first famous fly tire of the West Coast. Please do tell. John S. Ben was a San Franciscan. Okay. And he had emigrated from Ireland. Oh, and in no, Ireland, sure. he had fly fish for Atlantic salmon. And learned to tie flies. Mm-hmm. He was also a millwright. And so when when he immigrated in the 18th century, I cannot, I have not been able to pin down the exact year he came to the United States, but I think it was around 1870. Okay, so over 50 years before Hank Brown did. Oh yeah, a long time ago, yeah. 
And by the 1870s, he went through a bout of rheumatism that kind of killed off his millwright career. So he, re- he resurrected himself as a, by making money at what he at the other craft he had, which was tying flies. Mm-hmm. And, of course, no vices. You know, it was all done by hand. Mm-hmm. But uh, he became a very famous fly tire in San Francisco and one of the founding members of the San Francisco Angling Club, which became the Golden Gate Angling, Golden Gate Casting Club. Uh-huh. And uh, he actually, you know, you, everybody talks about Haig Brown bringing the two-handed rod. Well, no, John Ben actually won the two-handed rod casting competition in 1890 in San Francisco at the San Francisco Casting Club. I'm so embarrassed that I've never heard of this man Nobody before. Nobody has. It's not, don't be embarrassed because the only reason I got onto the trail of John S. Ben was because of Trey Combs. One mention in Trey Combs' second book. That's a tangent. And I thought, who's John S. Ben? Trey Combs obviously knew something, found something, enough to include it. And what Trey Combs wrote in his book was that uh, he wrote a little bit about John Ben, not much, and uh, mentioned that he had moved in his later years up to the Eel River. And Trey Combs is a, you know, he's just a wonderful, wonderful person. And when I made contact with him while I was working on that book, one of the things I wanted to ask him was, what are your sources for that particular piece of information? Because I had, at that point, researched John Ben to death and uh, found no indication that he ever moved to the Eel River. But I did find that his good friend John Butler and fishing companion and member, fellow member of the casting club in the 1880s, 1890s, had wanted to and intended to move John, the old, he was older, John Ben was older, move him to the Eel River and buy him a place and put him up there for the remainder of his years. It just never happened. And I think the reason it never happened, and this is in the book, you'll have to read it, but it's pretty interesting because you start getting into some uh, kind of personal stuff about a son-in-law and a daughter and some, uh, you know, some family problems and things like that. And I think that's why it never happened. Oh, that's a you shame. Know? Yeah, it's interesting, though. But, so tell me about this new book, then. You're writing another book. Well, the one that just came out is what okay. I'm talking about. And it's ta- all in there. Let's yeah. talk about the one that just Classic came out. Classic Steelhead Flies. Yeah. Now, I've just purchased that, and it arrived two days before I had to go. I just couldn't I couldn't get to mm-hmm. it in time. Mm-hmm. But I will be re- um, posting it on the reading list cool. and mm-hmm. reviewing it. I'm sure it will receive raving reviews, as your books do. Well, there was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in that one. A lot of time spent right here at this desk. And... Uh, you know the the like I, as you know the research can get tangential. What is the synopsis of the book? Well, essentially, I wanted to pick up where Trey Combs left off because I you know Trey Combs was he's iconic to me. I don't know if he's iconic to other people. He's iconic to me. He's iconic to us on the West Coast. Good, yeah, because you know what he did, you know, not just as a as a fly fishing writer, but as a historian. Mm-hmm. You know, his methodolo- methodology was very sound. I mean, he really worked hard. You can tell when you read Steelhead Fly Fishing Flies and his first book, he worked hard at it. Yeah, very hard. You know, he really put the miles in. He went and talked to people. I mean, he really worked worked hard at putting that book together, those books together. Mm-hmm. And when I, you know, I started, the first Steelhead book I ever read was Trey Combs, his first book, and then his second book. And uh, at that time... You know, my my influences, my earliest influences, were the flies tied by, uh, or in that book, the plates in that book, well, a lot of them were tied by Harry Lemire in his second, mm-hmm. in Trey Combs' second book. Right. And, you know, I, I looked at that book and I thought, I need to tie flies like that. And I read the book and I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. But I appreciated it more as year, as the years went by. Yeah, that happens, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then there became a point at some point, I don't know when exactly, within the last five years, it just occurred to me, you know, who follows Trey? Trey set, he set the bar and he provided this wellspring of information. But with historical research, there's never an end. 
There's there's never an ending no. point. It has to continue. And, you know, who's next? And I thought, you know, this is my wheelhouse. This is what I like to do. So I'm going to take on that responsibility and do the best job I can on it. And uh, I knew the book was not legitimate in my eyes without Trey Combs' blessing. So I approached Trey Combs, and, I, and my first uh, contact with him about it was about John Ben. I said, Trey, in your book, you say that John Ben spent the rest of his days on the banks of the Eel River. I can't substantiate that. Can you help me? Do you have sources that I don't know about? Trey was really forthcoming. He said, let me look into it. It's been a long time, been a lot of years. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, yeah, I, I don't know for sure, but that's the information that I have. And I don't really remember where it came from, but, you know, he's very honest with me. Yeah. And uh, so then when I came back around and I dug deeper and I dug deeper and I found the information where John Butler had intended to, at his own expense, move John Ben to the banks of the Eel River, but it just didn't happen. And that's where, where Trey Combs had probably found something along those lines, but didn't have the information that I had. Right. You know, you be, see, Trey Combs had to do all his research before the internet. You know, it's a lot easier on it's us. It's way easier So much easier. Us. If you know how to dig, there's a lot out there on the internet. Mm-hmm. So you still have to go to the library sometimes and do it in person, but there's a lot out there. So I was, able, yeah, I was able to find stuff Trey didn't have access to. That's why it's important to keep going on this, on, on historical research. Especially right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when, I, when that came around... You know, I'm thinking, okay, I've got information here that shows, essentially, that Trey Combs was wrong about that. But not wrong because his methodology was wrong. Wrong because he didn't have the information. And it was he couldn't obtain it. I mean, the only way he would have found that same information would have been to go down to the San Francisco Chronicle archives mm-hmm. in San Francisco, get access to those archives, if it's even possible, and start literally pouring through newspapers after newspaper, after newspaper from the early 1890s. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't even have let him. Yeah. So, you know, he he took it as far as he could, given his resources. I was able to have more resources. But the neat thing was, when I went back to Trey and I said, Trey, I would really like you to write the foreword for this book, because I just don't feel like it's legitimate without that input, without your blessing. Mm What did he say? He said, I would love to. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, he was great, you know. And he was—he's just been, you know, so supportive of the project, and that means that—that uh, means the world to me because I really respect what he did in the in the nineteen seventies, mm-hmm. and I feel like I'm taking what he did and hopefully, you know, taking it and pass and passing the torch. I feel like I'm taking the baton from him and laying it out there for the next person, and that's what I hope that book does. I hope the book, you know, from a, from a public audience perspective, I hope a lot of people find fun flies to tie and fun flies to fish, a little more appreciation for the classic flies, maybe some interesting fun stuff to read about some of these people. But somewhere out there is the next Trey Combs, or somewhere out there is the next me. And I hope that when that person comes along, they can say this book and Trey Combs' books are what laid the groundwork for what I've discovered and what I've done. It's got to be continued. Right. I mean, it really, I have a, a great deal of admiration for him and redoubled with his reaction to my work, yeah. to that latest book, you know, because it would be very easy for someone, for a lot of people in this business to be petty. Yeah. There was none of that in Trey. It was all supportive. It was all, this is great. It just kind of seemed like for a while there, Trey went missing. He kind of disappeared for a while. Yeah. He did, right? Yeah. Is yeah. he coming back? I'd like to think so. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to do my damn best to bring him back. 
Good. We've been corresponding since I had flies for friends years ago, and mm-hmm. he, he donated the Saracione. Oh, room. that's awesome. Well, speaking of books, so you have a second. What's going on with your Spay Flies, D Flies? Yeah, we very slowly. I'm working on a second edition, and uh, it'll be an expanded second edition. So it'll be a lot more information. And I have a massive file. You know, one of the neat things about, uh, and this is probably going to happen to you when you put out all these podcasts. But when you put stuff out there, you get feedback. And uh, you you start hearing from people that could not have been sources until you put it out there. When I put Spayflies out, I got some feedback, and a lot of it, and I got some feedback from people that would not have been available to me until it was out there. And uh, so... Was the response better than what you had expected? Well, I don't know if I had any expectation, because it hadn't been done. I mean, you know, Bob Averka, his came out, his book on Spayflies came out around the same time. But he wasn't really, I mean, he's a wonderful fly tire, phenomenal fly tire. But I don't know that he was real, you know, honest to the, the, the specific topic. I think he was a little bit more broad with what he was doing. It's, you know, here's what a spay fly is, here's how to tie them, but here's a lot of other stuff too that's interesting. He, he loves feathers, obviously. He talks a lot about that in his book. So we did different things. Um, but what I did, I didn't really have an expectation. But the, what I did find out was all of a sudden some doors opened to me that hadn't been opened before. Mm -hmm. And so when I went to Scotland um, twice after the book came out, just because that book was out there, the the Scottish, the the anglers on Speyside, they don't know their own history. What? So I was opening their eyes. But I thought that one of the great things about the fishing world over there is that they are so proud of their history. Yeah, when you get right down to Speyside, they don't know their own history. I mean, nobody knew who Jordy, Jordy Shanks was a forgotten man. So this is one can, of the greatest gillies in the history of salmon angling. 50 years, the gillie at Gordon Castle, the most prestigious salmon fishing in the world. Gordon Castle on the Spay River. Jordy Shanks overlooked that fishing for decades. You know, he had royalty at his elbow. I mean, that's how significant this guy was. He was forgotten. So is it just that they only remember from, you know, 100 years on? Is it just that there's well, expiration dates here? part of it is expiration dates. The other part of it is the, the uh, Scottish gillies did not write books. The Toffs wrote the books. The Englishmen wrote the books. Well, was it, what, was, who, what was Frederick Hill? Was he... Englishman, you know. Ah. So the Englishmen, you know, the, the Kelsons of the world wrote the books. And they might mention a ghillie in passing. And they did, you know, that's where I first got on the on the scent trail of, of the Shanks, of Jordy Shanks and Jamie Shanks, because there were some mentions in passing. But, you know, to this day, if you go do a Google search for and look up information on Jordy Shanks, there's not much out there. I found more information by looking for non-fly fishing stuff. You know, I mean, there was like a what? there was a, rem, a remembrance written by one of the one of the uh, members of the Gordon Lennox family called mm-hmm. When I Remember. I think it was Lady Caroline's uh, niece. Okay. And she wrote this remembrance of just a simple little book. Mm-hmm. Talked a lot about the grand old man, the grand old gilly, Jordy Shanks, who taught all of us to salmon fish. That's wow. where I started the finding the good stuff. Tidbits. Yeah. So, but, you know, to me, that's methodology. That's, you know, you can't have blinders on and just do your research within fly fishing because you won't find much sometimes. Mm-hmm. You got to get out that out of that world and, and draw in more information. A lot of the, the uh, British sporting journals are not digitalized. So the only way you get that information is to go look at them. Mm. So, you know, unless you're willing to make a trip to England or Scotland and go and to the libraries. and That's what you did. Yeah, that's what I did twice. Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah, I mean, I had I have photographs that I'll put in the next book probably, but they have a whole year of these old sporting journals bound in these uh, 20 by 14 or 15 inch binders. And they were bound, you know, 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. So you put in your request, for example, at the library in Glasgow, Mitchell Library, you write your request up, give it to the people there, and they go down to the archives and find this stuff. And when they bring it up, it's on a hand truck. Because I've requested, you know, this year, this year, this you know, I've, I've requested 10 years worth. So they're on a big hand truck. Oh, my God. They must yeah, hate it's you. awesome. They must hate me, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they're covered in dust. And they're like, wow, nobody's looked at these in 80 years. Like, really? (laughs) You know? And so I, you know, you get a whole table and you lay them out and you just start digging in. Oh, that's really admirable. I'm I'm impressed. It's incredible. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just amazing. And, you know, some of it kind of comes full circle in ways you don't expect. You know, I mean, I was at uh, uh, Perth, Perth Castle and I see these trees and I go, that's a Douglas fir. Why the hell is there a Douglas fir? A little grove of Douglas firs at Perth Castle. Douglas fir is a Western North American species. Mm -hmm. Aha, here's a little sign. David Douglas, the great British naturalist, brought these trees back from Western North America in the 19th century as saplings. Wow. But that's the awareness you have to have as an historian. If I had not recognized those trees as Douglas firs, I'd have never, you know, to me it was fascinating. Would you label yourself a historian? Well, I mean, I th- I think so. I mean, I, I think methodol- methodologically, I understand what needs to be done because I have that training as part of my collegiate background. But uh, historians, you know, to me, that's a powerful term. I've known some historians. What I've do you call some- yourself? What are you? Besides a writer. I mean, in this industry. Besides deadbeat slacker? I'm definitely going to say you're not a deadbeat slacker. <laughs> well, um, I mean, you're an angler. I fished with you today. Yeah, you're excellent. I I don't know that I I don't know if I have a categorize. I don't know if I can categorize myself. I do what I do. You know. Did I, you ever guide? Or just you enough, did, you just enough to cure myself of it. Yeah, you know. I mean, I did a little bit of guiding, and what I learned from that was I'd be a terrible guide because I just can't do what you guys do. I don't, you know, you guys, it's amazing. I learned a lot of respect for guys, but uh, I learned in my few years of trying to be a guide here and there. I learned that, uh, wow. You just, God, yeah. <laughs> because I own a guiding operation, I'm just going to bite my tongue on this. Right. <laughs> um, but yes, to be able to guide until you are oh, man. in your 60s or so, you know. Yeah, yeah, even yeah. Even if you're friends with those guys in their 80s. It's, it's amazing. It's yeah. very admirable. Yeah, um, it's, it, but it takes a special person. It takes it takes the right mentality. I don't have that mentality. It just it starts to hurt. My yeah. body just starts to hurt. I can imagine. Yeah, and yeah, my yeah. Back was. I mean, I told you. I think I told you this earlier. I, I always said I'd put in ten years of guiding. Right. And I put in my ten years, and this is my first year. This is technically year eleven, and I'm. Um, well, you're not guiding, see, but, but see, I have guides guiding for me. But I'm that's the guiding. thing, April. You're allowed to evolve as a businesswoman, you know. Yeah, and yeah. and you should, you know. Yeah, so I'm not going to feel guilty, right? Not not at all. <laughs> no, but but you know, like yourself and guides like you, when you get some years past, and you, and you're you're a few years past it, you're going to look back, and because I know this from knowing guides, good guides, you're going to eventually realize I helped some people have a more meaningful, joyful life. Yes. And that's the important part. Yeah, definitely. I, and I do lay my head down at night knowing that there's, mm-hmm. there have been lives changed. Because mm-hmm. yep. I mean, being a guide, one of the great things about being a guide is you're 
basically a bartender. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. The, the yeah. amount of people who have poured their hearts up to me about, you know, oh, you're na- insert the issue here. Counselor, yeah. bartender, babysitter. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's, it is a special role. You're, you're right. And I'm very blessed to have had those that time. I just now, couldn't do it. What yeah. about commercial tying? Were you ever a commercial I was, yeah. Yeah, actually, um, I started tying, commercial, tying commercially as a junior in high school. Um, for the little town we were in, Mill City, there used to be a sporting goods store up there. Okay. That was my first commercial account. And, uh, then, uh, in college, I tied flies all through college. I was tying 1,000, 1,200 dozen flies a year. 1,200 dozen flies a year? Oh my gosh. Why do you think I hate tying trout? I won't tie trout flies anymore. I, I get I it. I don't tie trout flies. She's, I, I don't wanna, want to tie trout I don't flies. want to tie five, let right. alone that. Me neither. I don't have that. I can't, I don't know how I did it, but... <laughs> I can't do it anymore. I mean, it bores me. If I have to tie the same pattern twice in, in one sitting, it yeah. drives me insane. Yeah. What else did you did you uh, play with in this industry? Um, let's see. That was probably about the extent of it, other than being a fly shop flunky. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you as know. we all were. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I, I've done the speaking circuit up and down. The, yeah, are uh, you still doing that? When I have time, you know, I mean, I, I, if, if, if a club, con- I, don't, I don't put myself out there. Mm-hmm. Because it's difficult to find the time. When I lived in, you know, before I started working for the magazines, when I lived in Bend, Oregon, there was years I would do thirty-five speaking engagements a year. That's a lot. Yes, yeah. You know, so I don't put myself out there anymore. But people contact me sometimes, and mm-hmm. you know, and and I, I, you know, you always struggle with. Uh, you're a small fly club. Here's what I cost, and I feel and, guilty. And, and I feel I guilty place. about it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, I feel bad. You yes. Know? So then, what I always end up doing is saying. <gasps> Oh, and so, okay, yeah, I'll just, I'll donate a trip. And yeah, you try to soften the blow a little bit. Yeah, right. 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 So now my But you know, it's funny. I found that, and you probably found this too, most of them get it. You know, they understand that, you know, yeah, you're, you need to make a living. And, and it's, it's very, you know, 20 years ago, there were some clubs that didn't get it at all. But these days, I think they're pretty much used to the, the paid speaker. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so I think they sort of understand a little bit. And I, you know, I I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not lefty cray. I'm not going to charge you two thousand dollars, but I do need it. This is part of my living, you right. know. So I, you know, I'll be honest with them. And but uh, and I enjoy doing it. I mean, it's one of those things where when you're leading for me, when I'm leading up to it, I'm like, oh god, I got to go here. I got to, oh come on, really. And then I get there. And I enjoy it's it. Fun, you know? isn't it? Yeah, it's fun. You There's know? some great people. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's fun to, to meet some people out there. And, and uh, you know, you realize that there's not much separating us, you know, I mean, us fly anglers. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got, you're speaking to a group of, of people who have a, they're from different walks of life, but they're all attracted to the same building at the same time for one thing. We all share this one passion. Exactly. But we're from all different walks of life. You know, and, and uh, I'm no different than they are. It's just that this is my business. Mm-hmm. And they have other businesses. Yeah, they do they other have stuff. Their business. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of fun that way. Let's talk a little bit about fly tying materials. Mm-hmm. One of my big pet peeves are flies and fly tying materials that are uh, produced to look good on either a shelf or on a box. Mm-hmm. And then when I put them in my, my swim tank with the flow, you can really see that it doesn't look that great in the water. Mm-hmm. And it was designed to to basically catch your attention when it was dry. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Are you finding that there's a lot of that right now? Well, you know, the, I to be honest, April, I can't keep up with what's up what's out there anymore. I mean, the the, the shelves of a fly shop these days that has a, a big deep fly tying material selection, I don't know what I'm looking at anymore. Do you think it's too much? Are we discouraging people? I, you know, I think we're making it intimidating. 
You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I started fly tying at a time when, you know, when you go into the fly shop and there's like beaver fur and muskrat fur, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, natural furs yeah. and things. And now I'm overwhelmed. I mean, I can't, it's intimidating to me. I'm thinking to myself when I go, I, I, you know, I don't go into fly shops a lot, but when I do, I'm like, whoa, it's like Christmas trees. Where do I start? Yeah. I don't know what this stuff is. I, I don't know how to even, where do I, where do I dive in here? You know, this is wow. All the bright lights. So I, I don't know. You know, I'm very traditional in my fly tying. Right. You know, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't have a lot of affectations that are modern. I mean, I, my flies have affectations, but it's all more traditional type tying. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm pretty stubborn that way. Are there I, any materials that you just straight up refuse to use because of? Oh ethics? yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, can you yeah. name some so the consumer can absolutely? Learn, so I, we know what stay away from. You'll you will never see a, a one of my flies with any lead on it. You know, okay. I, I don't do That's I don't do dumbbell eyes. I don't do you know I don't do that stuff. Um, if somebody else wants what about to, brass? fantastic. I don't do eyes. You, you just know? don't do weight at all. I don't do weight. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't do weight. And if, if somebody else wants to, that's great. You know, I'm not, I'm not a hater on that stuff. And that's yeah. been, and this is a great opportunity for me to, to clear the air on that. I'm not a hater on that stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen some phenomenally artistic flies tied with all the weight in the world. It's just not me. Yeah. That's and allowed. There's nothing wrong sure, with that. Sure. Absolutely. And it's all, but it's also situational. You know, I mean, if, if you're going to go down to the North Umqua and dredge flies loaded with weight, I'm going to probably say, hmm, try it my way, you know, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because you're on the most special steelhead river in the world. It may not be the best, most productive steelhead river in the world, but it's the most special. And it deserves a little more respect than that. And, you know, we, we lose sight of the fact sometimes that effectiveness does not necessarily equate to sporting you know, right. Roderick Haig Brown pointed that out, you know, very succinctly when he said that a fly angler is under at least a moral obligation to understand what makes his sport and why. Right. And that's a powerful statement. And I agree with him. Oh, I do too. And you know, the way I put it sometimes is I used to hunt ducks a lot. Mm -hmm. It's perfectly legal to wait till the ducks land on the water to shoot them. But why would you? Where's the sport in that? Yeah. You know, I mean, and so like... With fly fishing, just in general, fly fishing for steelhead, we are purposefully, by choosing to fly fish, we're saying, I'm going to limit myself. I'm going to limit my effectiveness. And I'm going to do that by fly fishing for them. If I wanted to put a lot of steelhead on the bank, I have friends that are really good with level wines, Bradbury jigs, and floats. Right. Oh, man. You want a body count? <laughs> Those guys can rack them up. I mean, they're awesome when they know what they're, the guys that know what they're doing. But... As fly anglers, we aspire to a different calling. You know, we are making a conscious choice to say that the aesthetic of fly fishing is more important to me than putting the number of fish on the bank that that guy can. Mm -hmm. And so then we can break it down even farther. We can say, for example, for you, you're saying the aesthetics of the chance of landing, hooking a steelhead on this cane rod Mm -hmm. is more important to me, than the number of fish that I'm going to catch in any given, you know, year or season or whatever. Yeah, of course. So it's, it, you know, we're, we're purposely limiting our effectiveness. Be- yeah. And by doing that, I think it's important to recognize that we don't, we're not measuring our sport by effectiveness. We're measuring it by an aesthetic value. And that's really important to me. It's very, I love hearing this. I and mean, that's my, that's my, that's my fly fishing philosophy right there. And that comes... 
easy to me because I started fly fishing at a very young age and I've killed, you know, in my, in my childhood days, I killed, there was no catch and release. I killed a lot of fish. Mm-hmm. I started steelhead fishing at 18 years old. I've put a lot of steelhead on the bank. I don't need to catch fish. One of the things that, you know, you, you will hear occasionally the, uh, the animal rights people talk about, you know, how they're so offended by catch and release fishing. Yeah, absolutely. We are, you and I, April, we are consciously saying, I'm going to go torture this animal. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm going to turn it loose after I torture it. That's exactly what we're doing. But what we're also doing is saying, at some level, we're okay with that. To some extent. Because, for me anyway, my counter on that is, for the small amount of torture that is happening there in that moment with the fish, it we're also fishermen are also uniting to save entire That's fisheries exactly from it. being wiped out. That's exactly it, April. We are it's we are accepting that compromise. We're saying that this is a time honored sport, an outdoor sport. It's a blood sport, mm-hmm. but we've taken the blood out of it by catch and release, right? Because we need to. The resource can't support you know, a whole lot of killing anymore. More importantly, it can't support the the environmental degradation we've done for more than a century. Right. And so by participating at the level we do in this sport and by accepting the fact that, yeah, we're torturing fish, but we're not torturing them that, that bad or that long. But we're, we're also, in addition to using this sport as a segue into environmental consciousness, we're also using it as a way of saying... The outdoor lifestyle needs to be alive and well, because if you don't have a society that appreciates what the out what 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 doesn't matter what your outdoor sport is, whether it's killing things, whether it's hunting, or whether it's fishing, or whether it's hiking, or hiking or skiing or rafting or whatever, if you don't have a strong segment of society that appreciates and understands that lifestyle, you're going to lose it. Mm-hmm. Not the lifestyle. You're going to lose the place to do it. You know, there's no, there's no, there's no victories in the environmental wars, none. There are only, you're, you're just forestalling, you know, the, so far anyways, the, the demo, you know, if you look back at the history of, of North America, we haven't won anything no. environmentally. And so, you know, it, but it's, but it's the, it's the fight worth fighting. You know, I mean, you, if we can forestall damage and, and degradation long enough that we can reach a different level, a different kind of society mm-hmm. where we don't need to destroy everything, then we've done our job. It may not happen in our, in our lifetimes, but we're bridging that gap. Yeah. No, that's the... So I don't have a problem. I, I accept the fact that I'm torturing that fish. Go back to fly time. What mm-hmm. about torturing these birds? I mean, are there any feathers that are on the... The endangered species list? No, mm-hmm. but or just that are... Migratory just, bird list and... Like, what feathers do you personally stay away from because of moral... Well, I mean, anything that'll get me arrested for starters, you know. Like but what? But well, beyond that, you know, I mean, like, you know, in, in the United States, uh, we have the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, and it protects virtually every single bird out there with three exceptions. The starling the English sparrow, and the feral pigeon. So they're all, it's open season on those. But they're all invasive. They're all, they're all, um, invasive. Yeah, they're okay. all invasive. But uh, the, the Migratory Bird Act covers everything else except upland game birds. Okay. And it also includes waterfowl. But there's provisions in the Migratory Bird Act to allow the, the, the commercial use of waterfowl feathers, legally harvested waterfowl feathers, specifically for fly tying. 
So that's a provision within the, the Migratory Bird Act. But to me, it's it's more of a uh, of a moral decision not to do any harm. You know, I mean, if there's a when I used to deal in Atlantic salmon materials, mm-hmm. I was very strict with with the law. I mean, there's a lot of dealers out there even now that are doing things that are not legal. They don't know it. They may not know it. Mm-hmm. But one of the th- What's I had an a, example of something that's not well, brown eared yeah. pheasant's a good example. So there's okay. there's three three common species of eared pheasants: uh, blue eared pheasant, brown eared pheasant, white eared pheasant. Right. I've blue seen eared, blue and white. Yeah, so blue eared pheasants uh, is commercially available. It's not an endangered species. It's not on the CITES list. It's uh, not a migratory bird because it's not a North American bird. It ha- the, the white eared pheasant and the brown eared pheasant are both endangered species. Mm-hmm. So I had a really interesting conversation, and they're available. You can buy them. But uh, the legality of that's in question. And uh, really, just, you know, there, there's no consistent enforcement, of course. But I had an interesting conversation years ago with a U.S. Fish and Wildlife agent, and she told me that. The intent of the law is not to allow any activity that could be detrimental to that species, and that includes commercial activity. So just because your brown-eared pheasants are domestically raised by some guy that's got a flock of 12 of them, and he's harvesting, the, he's killing them for the skins to sell them, doesn't make it legal in the eyes of the law. It's just that, you know, so to, to me, that's, that's kind of a biggie. I never would deal in that stuff, because not only... It wasn't the law. It was just that I felt that if a brown-eared pheasant is rare enough that it needs to be on the endangered species list, I don't want to contribute. I, I, I'm fully on board with what the U.S. Fish and Wildlife is telling me. I don't want to be a contributor to the demise of that species. What about temple dog? Sorry to go there, but I have to. Yeah, I don't know much about it. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, other than just the, the, the name and the, you know, that the flies are being tied with it, I don't know much about it. But have yeah. you heard about any of the, the ethics there? No, I haven't. The temple dog is, is actual dog. Okay. That for the longest time, I mean, it might still be the latest craze. I have traveled. I know it was pretty popular for a while. I've yeah. traveled the country doing my classes saying, mm-hmm. hey, listen, if I were you, I might uh, stay away from Temple Dog or at mm-hmm. least look into it further. And, okay. And I have looked into it and I have found and I, I'm still waiting. I mean, I'm sure there's there's got to be a source out there now that's responsible. I'm, I'm saying that hoping, but I, I, I don't know for sure. Right. But what I do know is, is that, or at least... Um, no, yeah, I'm not going to pussyfoot around here. What I do know is that it's actually it's dog in in Asia or in China. Oh no! Well, what they would do is to make sure that the hair is standing upright. They would club the dog over the head, uh, and then alive they'd skin it, and then they throw their gasping naked bodies in the pile. Kidding. Wow! And they would just die, you know. And that wow. to me is so disgusting. And yet all these fly shops are bringing it into. Yeah, the no, shops. I would. That's disturbing. If I'm a fly shop. But, and I know that that's off my shelves. No way. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I get disturbed by people that can kill coyotes and wolves. You know, I just shouldn't there be a standard? I mean, how is you how would think is, so? Uh, yeah. The United States they don't do a background check on any sort of. Well, I mean, it's pretty you know rigorous in terms of importation exportation. Do, uh, do they look at the way that that animal's harvested, or do they just? Yeah, look I at think it it's more this just whether it's on. Yeah, yeah, CITES list and endangered species list, that kind of thing. Yeah. What's next for you, John? Besides going to bed. Right. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, in terms of, uh, of big projects, uh, you know, I want to keep plugging away at that second edition of Space Flies. You know, it's been too many years in the making already. So it's going to be a revision? It's a, it's a big expansion, yeah. You know, and one of the things you'll find about historical research, you're going to be wrong about some stuff. And there's some stuff in there I was wrong about. 
But for the same reason that Trey Combs is wrong. It wasn't for lack of effort. It was for lack of resources. Yeah. And uh, and it came out right at that strange transition in the internet. Yeah, 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 it yeah. Was, the internet was still kind of new. Because yeah. I, I remember, because that book, I was still in dial-up. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that was yep. the same yep, era. Yeah, that right. I yep. was still in dial-up yep. at yep. the Hilltop then. There was no, there was none of that. There were no smartphones or any of no, that stuff. No, 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 yeah. And yeah. now it just feels like it's exploded. So right. you right, definitely right. have got more resources. There's more resources and... and I have a, a huge box of stuff that I can't wait to release to the public. I mean, just, you know, I know everybody wants the flies, you know, and the fly tying. That's what everybody wants. I hope that I can package the, the the book in a way that the fly tying draws them in, and then they'll read the history. Yes. You know, and then they'll say, oh, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And that guy really did some neat stuff. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's gratifying to be able to take a personality like Jordy Shanks like his father, Jamie Shanks, like John Ben out of San Francisco, and bring them back to life. Yeah. Because they've been forgotten. You know, and, and it's, in a lot of walks of life, in a lot of other genres, these people would never be forgotten. But it's it, it's it's a different beast. You know, fishing is a different beast. It's, it's uh, for whatever reason, a combination of uh, the fact that up until the internet, it's a small body of literature, and we have a short attention span. The increasingly short attention span, demonstrably, I think. So, you know, you're fighting that battle all the time, but the most important thing is to try to get it right and try to get it in print so you have a permanent record. And the most gratifying thing to me, like I said earlier, would, would be that, you know, somewhere down the line, the next person in the line that Trey Combs started, and even before Trey, right. there was some, some chroniclers. I would call Trey a chronicler. And it should be a continuity also. So uh, the most gratifying thing to me when it's all said and done would be to know that somebody picked up the torch, picked up the baton. The fact that those people are gone now, the pioneers of our sport, makes it more important than ever that, that we get this stuff recorded, get it written down, get it on paper, get it on, on audio, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, It's important. I mean, it's, it's again, we're not curing cancer here, but within our genre, it's important to respect what's come before. It's important to respect where we came from. It's important for the continuity. Without that continuity, we don't have a soul. And fly fishing should have a soul. Is there anything that you would like to add or ask me? Well, I, I mean, I think you've covered it pretty well. I mean, really, yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, I, what you're doing is wonderful. I mean, I, it's just uh, incredible, um, you know, chronicling that you're doing. Oh, thank you. And what, I mean, the people that you're talking to are people that I really admire. And I mean, I think it's neat. It's, uh, it's a lot of effort on your part, but... You know, it'll be worth it. We're getting there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, don't stop. I promise I will not. Okay. Thanks so much, John. (laughs) My pleasure. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please be sure to take a moment to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes. Thanks for listening.